when I'm traveling, I like to have a, a car compass. Uh, I can become disoriented, and there have been a couple of times when I've turned the wrong way and didn't realize I'd turned the wrong way. If I had a compass, I would have known that right away. So I bought this new compass and uh, put it in the car, but it seems to point the same direction no matter which way I turn. <laughs> and uh, that kind of a compass isn't much good, is it? Uh, don't have a compass, you need to be sure that it's going to point you in the right direction. Our view of God is very much like that. It's uh, the compass that kind of sets the, uh, the direction for everything else. And if, if you're not confident of the direction you're headed, uh, obviously you're going to have problems. Some people seem to think that just sincerity is enough, but uh, sincerity doesn't make up for a sense of wrong direction. I was to speak at a church in Rockford, uh, Illinois once, and uh, we took a shortcut and went across, and what I didn't know was that a road I thought was going east and west was at that point made a turn, was going north and south, and I turned left, think I was going west, and I turned left going south, and ended up farther away from the church rather than at the church. So it's just very important that uh, when we're going to make those kinds of decisions, and particularly when they're life decisions that are based on uh, some sense of direction, we need to make sure that it's right. Uh, Dennis Rainey, in one of his writings, says, a person is only as great as his or her concept of God. The extent to which we know, love, and obey God as he truly is will be the most important factor in determining whether we rise to greatness, drift into mediocrity, slouch into complacency, or slide into sin. Uh, we live in a, a day when the younger generations particularly have a tendency to say to their pastors by action, if not by word, don't preach theology to us. Just tell us how to do it. Give us the ABC123 and we'll just do it. Unfortunately, you can't just do it if you don't have right theology. Everything starts with theology. Everything starts with, with God. Jeremiah 9, 23, 24 says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom or boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. We need to make sure that we start with God himself. In the New Testament, there are are several words that can be translated no, but the most common ones are gnosis, from which we get the, the Gnostic uh, heresy of the early church, and, and then another one, epignosis, where they put a prefix on, on the basic word. And the word knowledge, this word knowledge, has the effect of an experiential kind of knowledge. It's not just intuitive knowledge that you kind of can think in your brain, but it's something that's gotten into your experience. So Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. An experiential knowledge of God. Uh, my workshop yesterday, I mentioned a, a, a professor of New Testament uh, at a major theological seminary who uh, wrote in a national journal that he knew all about God in his brain, but when his little boy got cancer, he discovered he didn't know God. He didn't know how to, to get in touch with God and have God minister to him personally. See, that's the great danger, that we won't have this, this experiential kind of knowledge. But 
when you put that little P on the front of it, that Greek uh, prefix, it, it's sort of like saying the true truth. That's a term Francis Schaeffer uses in his writings. And, and it's saying, you know, I know that Satan is out to pervert your view of God. That's where he always starts. Uh, started in the Garden of Eden, uh, told Adam, Eve, you know, you can't trust God. He's not telling you the truth. You won't die if you eat that fruit. You'll become like God. You'll become wise. God doesn't really love you. A good father wouldn't withhold that beautiful fruit from his children. And the minute they begin to question the character of God, uh, they've been had. They're almost clay in his hands then to, to lead them in all kinds of, of ways. So uh, Satan is always out to pervert it. And, and it's, Paul seems to understand this. And this is why in Paul's writings, he always begins with theology. It's always theology first and then application. And this attempt to jump directly to application, directly to the ABC 123, doesn't work. I used to somewhat facetiously say, uh, uh, somewhat facetiously, I wish God had given us a, a, a manual instead of a Bible. So, you know, we had it all down in nice paragraphs and ABCs, 123s, and do this and this and this. But you see, the reason he didn't do that was that then we would trust in the manual and not in God. God never let Israel fight the same battles twice the same way. If it had been we Americans after the Battle of Jericho, we'd have been writing a manual on how to take a double-walled city. But uh, God never let them use a manual. In fact, he asked them to do some very, from a human standpoint, dumb things. Uh, things that, that absolutely demanded that they say, we're going to trust God and we're going to do it God's way. And every time he gave them a new method, right? they couldn't use the same method twice. Uh, we can learn things in terms of principles, but uh, God always wants us to come back to him and make sure that we really know him. In Ephesians 4, 11 uh, to 13, he says that he gave some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all come in the unity of the faith unto this full knowledge of God, uh, the epignosis of God. In Ephesians, uh, uh, in Second Peter 1, 2, uh, Peter prays, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the epignosis of God, through the full knowledge of God. And if I were assigning a text for our time together today, it would be Ephesians 1.17, where Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the epignosis of God, in the full knowledge of God. Now, there's some things I went over in the last workshop, and if you were in that, forgive me for the repetition that you'll hear today, but some things have to be tied together. Uh, I would say that the only life-changing truth is spirit-taught truth. This is why Paul says that you may have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the full knowledge of God. That's why you can, you can put it in your brain, and that's like the file cabinet. You know, I've got some file cabinets at home, got some wonderful stuff in them, but it's not doing me much good because it's not indexed very well. And I have to go and rummage through that thing to, to see what's there. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's there. But, you know, if I had a, a good index, it would be very readily available to me. And too often we stuff stuff in a file cap in our brains, but we don't get it down to that life-changing level. 
So we need to uh, get to the the point of a full, true knowledge of God. Now, we've already noted that we have an enemy who's committed to defaming God. Already uh, spoken of that. Uh, I believe that I would agree with, with uh, Ron Susek when he speculates that Satan may have rebelled, Lucifer may have rebelled, when he saw us created, and I think the point is that we're created in the image of God, with the capacity for glory. We're going to somehow, and this is one of those mind-boggling truths, we're going to participate in the glory of God. We suffer with him, we'll be glorified with him. Paul says, when I consider the glory which will be revealed in us, revealed in us. Now, then the sufferings in this life take on a whole different view. And this is again why it's so important that we understand uh, who God is and understand the glory of God because that's the perspective we bring to our earthly experiences. And Satan was jealous of the glory of God initially. See, he, he has always wanted to be a God, apparently. The Bible doesn't say that in so many words, but he's tried to get Jesus to treat him like God, to bow down and worship him. He's going to come as uh, the man of sin, or the man of sin being a demon-possessed man, I would assume, and be opposed to everything called God or that's worshipped. He's going to place his throne where the throne of God ought to be, declaring himself to be God. That seems to be his great passion, to, to be a, a being like Yahweh, to receive worship and to receive glory. Now, he knows the Bible, and he knows that's never going to happen. You know, I've read the end of the Bible, and I know it's not going to happen. And unfortunately, many people don't seem to understand that. But uh, Satan is jealous of God, but he's jealous of you and me because we're going to participate in the glory of God. And so... He's constantly out to uh, defame God in any way he can. Now, he does this in some uh, rather large ways, and this isn't the major problem for many of you, but let's just look at some of the, the counterfeit gods that we find in the world today. And I know it's not politically correct to say that non-Christian religions are demonic, but I don't see how you can analyze it any other way because anything that takes the place of the one true God is Satan's methodology. That's the way he operates. Uh, he has to tell people only one lie to control them, and that is that they don't need to come to the cross. They don't need to come God's way into reconciliation to the creator of the universe. So uh, here's animism. Interestingly, most animists believe in a high God. There's been a lot of research done on this. A Catholic man from Europe years ago wrote very extensively on this and showed that most of the animistic tribes around the world actually believe in a high God of some kind. But they also believe he's so far away that you can't touch him. They have very fanciful tales in their mythology of how this God got so far away. The people of the tribe we worked with in, in West Africa the women pound rice in a mortar with the, the long poles. You've seen pictures of them probably pounding the rice to get the hulls off. Said so these women got so active one day they went up too high and they hit God and he went up far and so he won't come back down anymore because <laughs> he doesn't want to get hit with the, the rice poles. Uh, well, fanciful stories, but the point is that uh, when you work with these people, they don't talk about Kurumasaba, the high God. They talk about the spirit beings. And so Satan has effectively alienated them from 
any contact with uh, the God that they call the creator, the God of the living. Uh, you move to Hinduism and uh, you get to uh, kind of uh, the other side of the spectrum where God isn't even a person. Uh, God is just a world soul. It's just an impersonal kind of uh, being that, that isn't, you can't say he's a person even, uh, just this impersonal spirit. And the ideal for the Hindu is not to go to heaven and live eternally. The ideal is to see yourself as a little drop of water, which is a collection of water molecules. And what you want to do is to get dropped back into the ocean of God so that those molecules are reabsorbed in God but can never get together and be a drop of water again. They call it nirvana. Uh, that's the lie that Satan has uh, perpetrated on uh, millions, uh, billions uh, almost of people today around the world who are into Hinduism. My wife just uh, worked with a Hindu lady uh, a few weeks ago from our city in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Her parents are still um, uh, Hindu and she brought a lot of baggage with her that needed to be straightened out from uh, her past. Not only her view of God, but her view of, of and practices in many other ways as well. Or you go to Buddhism, and, uh, and Buddhism believes in God, but uh, uh, Gautama was a very wealthy prince in India, and, and he decided to go out and explore the world and see how things worked. And he tried asceticism, and he tried Hinduism, and he tried this and that, and he finally came to the conclusion that if there is a God, or if there are gods, they're powerless, so I've got to do it myself. And he developed the noble eightfold path uh, to get to nirvana. Uh, so again, God is far from what he really is in this kind of a thing. You take Islam, and God in Islam seems to be a little closer to the kind of God we know, and if you study Islam in uh, the university, uh, it will be portrayed as a monotheistic world religion, with Allah being very similar to the Christian God, uh, Yahweh, except that he's very, very different, a very arbitrary not a loving God, a God who just decrees and it happens. Uh, we worked with Muslim people uh, as missionaries and you know a man would stand before the judge and the judge say, why did you do that? He said, what God wills. You know, a man came to the hospital, a leg full of gangrene because they treated it with native medicine. And the doctor said, why didn't you come sooner? We could have healed that, that leg. We're going to have to amputate it now. And they said, what God wills. God is just a very arbitrary God. No point in talking to God. No point in really praying to him except to repeat the prayers in order to maybe stay on the best side of him. But you can never really be sure you're going to heaven in Islam unless you die in a holy war. That's the one way you can be sure that you do it. That's why you get these uh, men committing suicide in, in uh, suicide bombings because they're assured that they will then go to heaven because they're killing heretics. Uh, what, a, what a God. You know, and what the Muslims end up doing is turning to the spirit world. And they're animistic at the bottom crust of, of Islam. And if you want to win Muslims to Christ, you better be prepared to deal with the spirit world because that's where their power structure is. Uh, coming closer to home, we've got the New Age movement where we've basically gone back to Hinduism or Buddhism where everything is God and you are God. And the, the one sin of the human race is not recognizing our godness. And if we would just say, I am God, I am God, and I can control my own destiny, and we'd all do that, and we'd all begin to 
to think the same way, uh, all think peace, if we can get enough people around the world thinking peace, because we're God, we can create peace in the world. Uh, great perversion, of course, of, uh, of what the truth is. Witchcraft uh, is a swing back to the old nature gods and goddesses, particularly the goddesses, the pre-Christian uh, deities. Uh, witchcraft today, of course, is a multifaceted thing. There are all kinds of versions of witchcraft. There isn't just one kind of witchcraft, but it, for the most part, it is the swing back to the old nature gods and goddesses and uh, again, a perversion of the truth. Or secularism, that human reason is God, the Enlightenment movement, which has basically been the, the formative influence in our Western culture. Uh, it's an 18th century movement led by men like uh, Immanuel Kant and, and Rene Descartes, uh, said we don't need a God or some supernatural force to make us significant. We're significant because we're reasoning human beings. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And so, again, God is relegated to a, a, at least insignificance, if not not existence. But then we have perversions of the Christian God. There are those who are dealing with what they understand the Bible to say about God. And one of them, of course, is that there isn't any God. Now, it's interesting that when they have to deny God, they're in a sense, uh, talking about the God that, that we're talking about. But the scriptures are pretty clear about this. Uh, uh, Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And you understand the belief of atheism. Uh, then there's deism, which uh, was really the belief system of many of the leaders uh, in early America. That's uh, not too well understood by many people, but... Deism said, oh yes, there is a God up there. He's the creator. He made this world. He started it running according to what we call the laws of nature. And then he went back to heaven where he sits on his throne and he just lets the world run. He doesn't interfere with it. And that leads to uh, a belief in a kind of uh, uh, theistic evolution or uh, the idea that this world really is a sort of neutral place now that's running by these neutral laws and God isn't really involved, so you don't really have to worry about relating God to life. Uh, a perversion, again, of, of the Christian view of God. This was the view of uh, Thomas Jefferson, of a number of the other uh, early leaders in our country. Then there are caricatures of God. Uh, God is a, a judge who specializes in condemning. Some people who come for counsel say, you know, it seems like no matter where I read in the Bible, I feel condemned. And, of course, that's the work of the enemy, that he's just constantly saying to them, you're bad, God's the judge, and he's always going to be judging you, you can never be good enough. And if you believe that, of course, that's the way you're going to live. I have a basic premise that I work on in all of my ministry that people may
that's grace. And that's the judge, the prisoner standing before the judge and judge saying you're guilty. I'm waving the sentence and I'm going to adopt you and take you home with me and make you my heir. Can you imagine that? That's what God does for us. That's grace. Grace is getting what you could never deserve. One writer says it's like a, a king issued blanket amnesty for all pr- uh, uh, prostitutes in his kingdom. You've been one of those, why that would be good news that your past is going to be locked out and you could start all over with no prejudice to your past. Well, that would be good news, but the best you could say at that point was, I'm a forgiven prostitute. But if the king comes to one of those women and says, I want you to marry me and become the queen, what happens to her? She's given her new identity, isn't she? She hasn't earned it. Not something she did. King just says, I'm going to make you the queen. You know, or you're adopted into the king's family, and you can think the way you used to think when you were an orphan back there, or you can say, wow, I'm a prince, I'm a princess. I need to learn to think and act like a princess. That's grace. But that's what God does for us. And that these false views of God, this hard to please God and all of that, that's not the way it works. Now, uh, let me just show you one other thing. This is not in your notes, but... Uh, uh, how we see God as Father as to how this uh, this works out in our lives. We basically, in relating a child to a father, ask two key questions. Am I loved and can I get my own way? And that's love and, and limits or law, uh, love and authority. Uh, children of any kind need that. And we'll see how this works in the family situation in, the, in a moment. But then we say, does God love me, and does God have authority for my life? If I say, yes, he loves me, and yes, I can get my own way, that there isn't any particular limits out there, well, chances are we get an easy believism in our evangelism or an antinomianism, uh, a worldliness, because we're, we're open out here without any definable limits. Come down to this quadrant, and we say, does God love me? No. Can I get my own way? Yes. That's the worst possible parenting style for uh, anything. And this leads to a feeling of rejection because you're not loved, to license because there are no laws, and uh, to skepticism because you know there's no basis for believing anything because the authority structure is gone. So you come over to this quadrant and you say, does God love me? No, I don't feel God loves me. Uh, can I get my own way? Oh, man, no, there are laws for everything. He's got rules. I can't do this and I can't do that. Uh, and that produces either legalism, feelings of inferiority, or open rebellion. You know, I just rebel against this authority over here that isn't supported by love. You come up into this uh, quadrant and you say, does God love me? Yes, oh, I know God loves me. He is love. Can I get my own way? No, he has meaningful limits for my life. He's the one who established this world, has defined the limits into which in which I should live in this world, and that provides me the, the security of being loved and knowing where the limits are. So I don't have to always be pushing out there to find out how far I can go. Well, you take that. I'll put it back up in a minute. You take that concept of love. You take that concept of, of uh, a, a father and apply it to you as a parent or to your parents as you relate to them. And we're asking the same questions. The child says, does my parent love me? 
can I get my own way? Or do my parents have meaningful authority in my life? If we say, no, yes, I am loved, but no, I, I don't have authority, uh, probably a spoiled child, maybe a creative one. This isn't the worst possible arrangement because love is so, so very important, but uh, not the best. Uh, coming down here, uh, do my parents love me? A no, can I get my own way? Yes, they don't seem to care what I do. This leads ultimately to the psychopathic personality, uh, troubled, insecure uh, people. Coming over here, and we're talking about parents now, does the uh, child says, do my parents love me? No, they don't, they're not even around. Uh, do uh, they have laws? Yeah, my dad says, just do it because I say so. Don't ask any questions. I'm the boss around here. And it's just a hard-handed uh, authority. And this leads to bondage, to rebellion, to uh, withdrawal on the part of the child. Or you come up here and you say, do my parents love me? Yes. Can I get my own way? No, they have meaningful limits. I don't have to keep pushing because I know where they are. And this is one of the hardest things for us to, to do as parents in our society. I I have a a daughter and son-in-law who are missionaries and they have the advantage of doing it in a non-Western society, but they've raised their boys, four boys, and they're the finest young men you want to meet anywhere in the world with, with clear lines of authority and with constant love. Authority administered in love. That's the ideal parent. That's the, the biblical concept of parent. Now the problem is the reason we don't parent that way is uh, too often that our view of God uh, has been wrong. We've related to God as Father uh, in, a, in one of these ways other than this one. And if God is this legalistic Father, we come across with a heavy-handed authoritarianism, but not with love. Or we spoil the kids by you know, saying, oh, I can't thwart them, we will we'll stifle their growth. If the psychologist would study our daughter and son-in-law's raising of their children, I'm sure they would be very, very critical of it because they did spank and they they established authority. You know, there just was not even count one, two, three. You obey or you don't obey. And, uh, you know, that, that stifling, the oldest of those four boys was given an award in college for creative leadership on campus. He was asked by the senior class to be their spokesman to give what they call the reflection speech at commencement. Far from stifled, these boys are leaders. They're in athletics. They're in music. They're, they're, uh, one of them served as a student chaplain on his campus. Uh, this is where we need to be. And it's only going to be there if we understand God properly, we understand his love and his authority, in proper balance, mercy and truth meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. That's Psalm 85. So, uh, just to, to wind this up, uh, do have one more overhead here somewhere. Here we go. The better we know God in His holiness, the better we know what sin is. What we said before, uh, the better we understand the sinfulness of sin, the better we understand the mercy and grace of God in forgiving our sin, and the better we understand God's grace, 
the better we understand our identity as his children, as joint heirs with his son Jesus Christ. People need to begin with the right view of God if they're going to end up with the right view of themselves as the children of God. So, our time has gone and we need to uh, go to lunch. Let's pray together once again. Father, we just thank you that you have revealed yourself so clearly to us. We ask that you will help us to have this epignosis of you, this experiential knowledge of who you really are, not who our parents have portrayed you as, not who false teachers have told us you are, not what our experience seems to say, but to believe your word, to believe your self-revelation. So I just ask your blessing on us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.